Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Your Therapist Needs Therapy podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Schumacher, licensed marriage and family therapist. And today I am joined by Dr. Quincy Gideon. Dr. Quincy, thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah, me too. Uh, I've found your work. I, I think you trained uh, one of my guests that I had on earlier, but running in, in religious uh, trauma circles, I came yes. across your Instagram and and all that stuff. So I'm super excited about talking about trauma and complex PTSD and all that stuff. What I like to start with is kind of just a, a background on you. How did you get into sure. the profession? What was kind of your your entry point into working in the, the mental health field? Well, I can't talk about my profession without talking about my own religious trauma. <laughs> so I grew yeah. up in a really culty group and um, I can tell you all of those stories, but and they are wild and uh, lots of fun little twists along the way. But most importantly for you to know is that my group was really, really intent on um, evangelizing. And that meant that they needed lots of missionaries. They also don't like women. <laughs> so sure. as a as a woman who felt very compelled to do right uh, by the church and by God and by my community and by my family, uh, missionary life was the life that felt available to me. It felt like I could be strong and courageous um, in that space when I wasn't necessarily able to. Um, back home in the States. So I, in college, started working in, uh, you know, different sort of uh, groups and organizations, and then eventually started my own nonprofit. Um, it was a religious nonprofit. We did a lot of trauma work, which I had no business doing. I had no sure. idea what I was doing, uh, but I felt like I was, quote, saving people. And so um, I lived in Africa on and off for about 10 years. I was humbled over and over again about the significance of trauma and how terrible um, I was at understanding human behavior, uh, trauma, and the way that it plays out for people. And so I thought, well, I'm going to do this missionary thing, so I should probably get some education. So I got my master's. I think I was probably in my first class in my master's program when I was like, oh, I'm going to want a doctorate. Okay. So I, so my education has been sort of long. It's been drawn out uh, because I was going back and forth um, to Africa. Uh, but mostly I was sitting in counseling classes going, oh my gosh, there are ways in which we can hold human suffering without praying it away. I mean, blown yeah. away for those two brain cells to touch and be like, uh, we can do something different than just hug and pray it away. And so I, I think in that process, that's really kind of when my deconstruction started, but I didn't know it. I didn't know that I was deconstructing all of the stuff that I had learned about emotions being terrible and they're a sign, you know, that God is not happy with you or you're not in relationship with God, uh, that trauma is God punishing people. Um, I remember my church had a lot of feelings about Hurricane Katrina being sure. sort of God's way of uh, bringing a city back to him. I mean, this stuff is horrible to think yep. about, like how awful. Um, but that was the water I was drinking every day. Um, and so then I was getting exposure uh, to other things. Um, I was in a, a, a really terrible marriage, but it was 
and quote ordained by that church. (laughs) And when that fell apart, I think I really just came face to face with, you know, I followed all the rules. I was a really great missionary. I married the man that I was supposed to. Um, I did the things that I was supposed to, and it didn't actually save me. And it doesn't save people from trauma Mm -hmm. and pain. And that's the main thesis, right? Of the church that I was growing up in. And so that really kind of started my own personal work of really having to come to terms with the fact that I really wanted to be a therapist, but that I was actually going to have to address some of my religious beliefs because I couldn't sit with people who were suffering and believe that they had caused it. That that just no longer set well with me. Um, so that's kind of how it all started. It was yeah. a painful journey. I, <laughs> listening just to that, just having like spiritual bypassing flashing oh, in my yeah. head. As like, oh, yeah. Yep. That's all that is. That seeing trauma, seeing suffering and thinking like there's there's good that comes out of it or this yes. is a test. Like, yes. ugh. Oh, I know. I, the things that I personally remember saying, you know, if I could go back to my like 2008 Facebook status, that was like, (laughs) that was prime, uh, indoctrinated spiritual bypassing Quincy. It is so painful to see those things pop up on my Facebook memories. I'm like, oh my God, I said that to people. Oh my God. I made that explanation. Um, oh gross it's so cringe <laughs> yeah yeah so i i grew up evangelical as well so i think mm. there's there's a lot of um i don't know quirks maybe of this this being raised when you have the pressure to be responsible for other people um literally yeah. their eternal salvation is up to you yeah. and whether or not you reach them and so mm-hmm. it's it's interesting now after deacon when i started my profession i was still uh a Christian, a progressive liberal Christian, but still a Christian. And looking at now, like how I hold space for people is is significantly different. Mm-hmm. There is that process of kind of letting go some of those toxic doctrines and, and mm-hmm. teachings and learning like, oh, human experience. This is how trauma affects all of us. And this is how we can hold space for people and, and help them heal mm-hmm. um, when they're ready for that journey. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, uh, what was like your your leap into education? Was that something that for you personally where like gathering education was important? I remember sitting in a little village in Congo um, and I the organization that I was working with had to like sneak me into Congo because it was a closed border at the time. And I remember sitting there and there was like an entire village that had um, really I've been burned, burned to the ground um, because the rebel um army had come through and basically they steal all the children and they make them into child soldiers it's horrid Mm -hmm. but mothers were in like so much distress and i remember sitting there and being like embarrassed that i thought that i could come in here and like pray and make them feel better there was just there was like some it was like a it was a humbling moment there was some mix of humility and what the hell am I doing? Like, what, what, who do I think that I am in that moment that I think pushed me into, I need help. Um, I, I don't know what I'm doing. I need to figure out if I'm going to continue this, I need to figure out 
what is trauma? How can I actually help people? What programs do help? Um, instead of just coming in here and like praying over people and having kind of like a church visual, like, is there something else uh, that I can be doing? So there was, there was like a very distinct moment. I would say that my church, um, my parents, the church leaders were rather supportive of my education. I don't think they would have been, except that I was a missionary, right? And the education was all about doing better mission work. And it meant that I had an excuse to come back home, right? Like periodically, I wasn't constantly um, on the continent of Africa. So there was like, there was some mixture of that that I think just led to enthusiastic support, um, which I appreciated. It gave me permission to do something that I don't know that other women in my church necessarily felt like they had permission to do. So when when you kind of went through that deconstruction phase, was that a soft landing for you, knowing what you knew about trauma at that point? Or did that kind of, oh, this is complex PTSD. This is what it looks like. This is what religious trauma specifically looks like. No, I think that there's something really tricky that happens in fundamental evangelical churches that I am intent on trying to change in my lifetime. And that is the you poor pitiful other you are the one that has trauma we do not we do not claim to suffer such things trauma is for the weak and so even though i had a lot of education about trauma i don't actually think that i was in a place where i could see that i was the sufferer of trauma that i had um picked up a lot of trauma actually along the way, uh, both in my religious setting and living in war zones in Africa and going through a really traumatic divorce. Like that, that was something that I felt, I still had all of the beliefs of the church, right? I had not attended to the fact that I had internalized that being traumatized was a sign that I had done something wrong. I had not yet deconstructed that. And that was that had to be deconstructed before I could see myself yeah. in kind of the the like full view of being a trauma survivor. Yeah, for sure. I think it's it's somewhat spiritual bypassing, and I think some of it is is the weird hierarchical thinking that goes along with with evangelicalism, where it's hard to acknowledge or experience some of these things in our body because we've been taught at least i was taught like your body is going to lead you astray and so like learning yeah. how to experience and sit with that first and then being able to kind of experience it and then bring the intellect or bring the knowledge um to it later like i went and got specific training in religious trauma after i was finally like out and out as an atheist to be like oh no like right this all makes sense but i need to like look at it differently yep Absolutely. I think that uh, the journey is not just deconstructing what you were taught, but deciding and really paying attention to what you internalized. Like, what did you make a personality? <laughs> what did you decide was going to be, um, forgive the, the analogy, but what was the hill that you were going to die on? And I had internalized a lot. Um, I had to internalize a lot of intensity and bifurcation. Things have to be one way or the other, black and white thinking. I really, I really had to attend to a lot of that. It was not just like, oh, you know what? The concept of hell is quite abusive and 
I don't think I want to believe in that anymore. I had to, to also uh, address what I had, had internalized about good and bad people and if humans were born good or if they were born bad and why I thought that like it's more than just the concepts that you learn it's about what you have internalized and how you sort of made that a part of your worldview your personality the way that you conduct yourself it's it's deep work yeah for sure I think it's I talk about deconstruction as kind of the doctrinal approach to it the beliefs and then the deconversion is like what did you ingrain? What did you internalize? And like, that's a longer process to, to get that stuff out and it pops up in weird ways or, or unexpected places. Definitely. Um, one of the things I, I was excited to talk to you about is, is you have your PsyD and yes. for those who are not in the PhD is like, uh, not always geared towards academia, but often geared towards academia and PsyD is a little bit more focused on practice and working with people directly. But so you do psychological testing Yep. Um, and I'm curious if you yeah. can speak a little bit on like some of the overlaps between something like ADHD and trauma or where you aren't trained in trauma very well, misdiagnose some of those things. Yeah, totally. Uh, well, in kids specifically, trauma and ADHD look so alike that I don't actually allow any of my practitioners to diagnose either until someone has been in treatment for at least four months. And I do that for a reason because I think mm -hmm. that um, the symptoms look the same, but one is neurological. It's a brain structure thing. It's genetic. You sort of inherit it and it's nothing to be ashamed of, but certainly something you're going to have to work through and find ways to work through it. And trauma is a big signal and beacon that something is not right and the adults in the situation need to pay attention, right? And so I don't wanna get to diagnosis too soon because I want people to sit in that space and really try to figure out what is going on for these kids that are trying perhaps to signal to the rest of the world that they need some help. Um, so for instance, like uh, we know that there's a lot of anger uh, that can show up in children with ADHD. That makes sense. They're super frustrated. They didn't get all of the instructions because they couldn't pay attention long enough. The adults in their life are frustrated with them and giving them feedback about that. Their friends are maybe calling them weird. They can't seem to sit still and they get a lot of feedback around that. Like that makes sense that that kid would be pretty angry and annoyed with both themselves, but also the world that's not made for them. That makes sense. When you have a traumatized kid, you would also see anger. There's something that has gone deeply wrong. Uh, they're walking around the world sort of feeling like, am, it, did I do this to myself? Did like, why did this happen? Why am I not safe? They're mad that they're having the feelings that they are. They're mad that they're distracted uh, because that's what happens in trauma, right? Is that we have a hard time thinking of other things. Um, we have a hard time staying present. We dissociate a lot. And so which is it? Is this kid angry because he's got some ADHD things going on? Or is this kid angry because he's been traumatized? And so I think when those things go on, I want people to just be careful um, before they give those labels because we need to be paying attention to what they're actually saying. Yeah. And I, I love that approach. And I love that kind of a, a blanket of like, we can't diagnose this too early, because I think that's one of the things that that happens. I, I especially work with a lot of adults. I work with a lot of uh, adults who are neurodivergent and didn't get diagnosed as kids because they learned to mask mm -hmm. so effectively. Yeah. And so then yeah. like pulling on that thread as an adult where it's like, oh, you 
had some things happen mm-hmm. in your life and you're also neurodivergent and like what does that look like because you managed it some way throughout your right. childhood but now it's affecting you as an adult so like really tricky i think i think a lot of people don't get the right diagnosis mm-hmm. and they get the the process of therapy or getting help becomes very off-putting because they're not totally. getting help that makes sense for them right so working with with trauma um doing emdr what what are some of the things that you see working with people who have religious trauma like what are what are common things that you're looking for as a practitioner or what are common things that people are are presenting with um in that process like okay religious trauma here's what here's what we need to do most or let me rephrase that i guess do most people come in knowing that they have religious trauma I would say in my practice, there's a really good mix. Um, I would say that a lot of folks come in and they're not quite sure why they were compelled or why they really liked our website or why they really liked uh, one of the therapist bios. They just, they're not quite sure, but they're kind of showing up for the process. They know that things aren't going well and they need that sort of help, but they're not quite sure. And then of course, because the body keeps the score and is maybe uh, managing some of these things uh, behind the curtain, uh, they, we do sort of unravel like, oh yeah, yeah. And this was a tough, this was a tough culty environment. There was lots going on. Um, and we need to do some significant work around that. And then I would say the other half come in and they're like, let me tell you about this culty school that I was sent to because I was neurodivergent and everyone thought that I was just a pain in the ass. And so, uh, let me tell you about all of the things that they did. And it, it was a school that was run by Synanon and it, you know, like they know, but they haven't necessarily come in contact with practitioners that are like, boy, do I have your back. I know exactly what this is. I've worked with other survivors that were in that situation. I'm well aware of the culty dynamics that went on there. Allow me um, to just sort of sit with you and maybe help you in this process, like guide the process. Um, So I would say it's a mixed bag. Um, To your question around what I see specifically in religious trauma and cult survivors, uh, there's usually some huge identity issue. So like, who am I? And it, how can I start to reclaim some of that? Or how can I understand myself if I don't have this really religious or rigid uh, kind of list of things that I have to be? Uh, how do I reimagine myself in relationships? How am I going to be a parent um, if I am no longer a part of this like really rigid rule system? So there's usually some big question of identity. There's also some big delay in some area of development. If they grew up in purity culture, they have some big delays in sexual development. They don't know what the hell their body is doing and why it does what it does. And they're super ashamed of it. And, you know, what, what do I do about that? Um, if they grew up in really rigid uh, church groups or cult groups, they may have some significant relational development, which means that they don't know how to relate to people. They don't know how to let people close. They don't know how to manage some of their emotions or maybe like the normal, like angry, upset things that might happen um, in relationship. But there's typically some type of delay. And that's only because they've been deprived of normal developmental tasks, um, you know, so that they can develop the skills to get over that um, or to work through that or to decide who they're going to be in the world. And then I would say the next thing that I look for is a significant amount of guilt and shame. 
I've never met a religious trauma survivor that does not walk around uh, with significant guilt or shame. It's like the cloak that they wear. <laughs> it's like the t-shirt yeah. that they wear. Um, and it covers all of their other emotions in a way that prevents them from knowing themselves. Um, and it's really distressing for them. They know it's not quite right, but they don't know how to not feel guilt. Yeah. And if some religious groups like Catholics, I was raised Lutheran, evangelical Lutheran. And so like we talk about like, yeah, that that Lutheran guilt, like yeah. even when we were when I was in the church, it was like an acknowledged and kind of out thing of like, yeah, you, you have that guilt all the time. Um, mm -hmm. which is a weird normalizing tactic they use to, to keep people from realizing how like unhealthy that is. Totally. Yeah. It's all functional. That's the point. You got to know that everything that is taught in any sort of institution is working towards the end goal of the institution. So feelings keep people, uh, active in a way where they're challenging leadership. They maybe leave and don't give their money. There's all kinds of ways in which the institution has an end goal. And so everything that the institution is doing is going to be to the end of that goal. That's it. You have to know that um, in any organization. It doesn't matter if that's a business, a private practice that you're working for, the school that you attend, every institution has a goal and they're going to make rules to get to that end goal. Yeah, I talk about organized religion as social control. Like it's it's an organizing it's an organization that is designed to control certain group of people, like creating in-group out-group dynamics and then to control the behavior of the in-group. Absolutely. I've been nodding so aggressively for everything you've been saying cuz it's like, yep, yep, yep. Um it's a podcast. No one can nodding. Um <laughs> What's your journey like uh, as a therapist working with a lot of these cases that are heavy, managing secondary trauma, uh, maybe still doing some work around your own fingering or things pop up for you? Like what, what do you kind of do to navigate being in this space as a professional while taking care of yourself, not just through self-care, cultivating joy and things like that? What's kind of your process for um, what you're, what's going on for you personally? Well, I first of all, practice a lot of freedom in that. That's one thing that my church did not allow me to do. And so in my life now of treating trauma and addressing religious trauma, I really am looking for freedom. So maybe that's like, um, the freedom to do something that I wouldn't normally do. Like it's not really a part of my normal concept of how I take care of myself, but damn, it feels good today. And so let's go do that. Um, I give myself a lot of freedom to change my schedule if I need to, like literally like not doing that this evening. I don't want to. Um, a lot of freedom um, to say out loud uh, to my family, uh, that I live with, what is going on? So like, I am not sharing details, but I'm, uh, I immediately when I come out of my office, I might say like, oh, whew, lots going on today in the world. And, you know, I'll just sort of say it out loud. And I, I find that literally just the practice of freedom um, of doing what feels good in that moment is really, really helpful for me. I also throw everything at it. So if I'm going to recommend that, um, you know, my clients do a certain type of treatment, then I probably 
need to be willing to do the same. Um, and so I have gone through EMDR before I became an EMDR practitioner. Um, I went through ketamine assisted psychotherapy before I became a ketamine assisted psychotherapist. Um, I am doing the things that I'm recommending to my clients. And half the time it means that I'm I'm actively in the process of healing both what I am listening to uh, every week that can be super discouraging and like super scary to think about groups and churches behaving in the ways that they do. Um, but I'm also dealing with some of the past stuff kind of at the same time. Um, so every time I think that there's a new good idea for anyone at my practice to start practicing, I'm going to do it first. Um, and it's just been a really nice practice for me to get into years ago when I uh, opened up my my private practice. And it's been one that I continue and, and encourage all of my therapists to do. Can you talk a little bit about the journey to opening your own private practice in agencies for years and different settings? And it, it took me a while to get to that point of opening my own place. And I needed a really terrible boss and needed to get a lawyer in order to get paid and all that, the nightmare stuff of agency work to be like, oh, I could do mm -hmm. this myself and I could do it ethically and in a way that's mm -hmm. that's congruent. What was your experience in kind of setting up your place and running it the way that you wanted to? Well, I do have a bit of an entrepreneur spirit. I don't think that there's like a lot of 18 year olds that are starting nonprofits so that they can run their own mission agency and not have to deal with other people's rules. So maybe there's like a little of that kind of cooked in. Um, but I was working at a jail in downtown LA and that jail is the biggest mental health treatment facility in the world and it is a jail. So maybe just take that in for a second. Uh, that's really scary for yeah. us to think about. Uh, but I was a psychologist that was working in a really intensive unit um, inside of the county jail in LA. And so I was getting up at four o'clock in the morning, uh, getting to the jail by five, uh, working until three. And I mean, I was hustling. I was trotting around that jail trying to see all the patients, um, you know, that I needed to see and evaluate, going to court, uh, advocating for them, trying to figure out who needed a conservatorship and who didn't and all the paperwork that's involved in that. And then I would race. I mean, practically run down those stairs, get out of the jail, get to my car, which was like half a mile away and race to my private practice. And I would see patients until nine at night. And the in the midst of that, it was, I knew that I couldn't give up the private practice because the the suffering, the pain, the deep mental illness, the institutional abuse that I was seeing in the jail was not going to leave me in a great space with how I approached humanity. <laughs> it was going to jade me. And I knew that. And so I had to keep the private practice, but the private practice wasn't making enough that I could support myself in Los Angeles, California, which is no small feat uh, for a single gal. And mm -hmm. so I had to stay at the jail for all of the benefits and the, the steady paycheck and all of that good stuff. And so I think I just did that knowing that burnout was going to come if I didn't try to make a decision. And in that space, I think I was able to like do what I needed to do, get through the, the nitty gritty of it. And then eventually I moved into private practice, which was super scary. I mean, it was absolutely frightening uh, because you don't know, like you don't, no one tells you in private practice that, uh, you know, people, 
uh, take some time off, usually every July, sometimes August, and then December. And so that you actually need to save money because your caseload is going to drop during those times. Like no one told me that stuff. Um, so it was, there was lots of learning curves, but I did think that I needed two things. I needed to remember the goodness in humanity. And I know that that is, feels um, like an oxymoron as a trauma therapist, but I see the goodness in, in humanity every day when I sit with my patients, even though their stories are really gnarly, even though it's so upsetting to hear, I get to sit vigil with them and I get to be let into places that they don't let other people into. And there is such a tenderness in that space that I just feel like I'm the luckiest, luckiest woman in the world that I get to do that. So that there's that's a huge need of mine and I'm able to do that. And the other need that I had was to create or curate a practice that honored both patients and then clinicians, those that are kind of in um, the trenches. Uh, with their clients. And so I feel like we've been able to do that. Boy, are there lots of learning curves, like the first year that you get that big tax bill and you were like, what? <laughs> I thought I was paying taxes on payroll. You are, but you also have yep. other ones too. Yep. And, uh, you know, the first time that I like needed to consult with an attorney and they were like, that's great. That will be $1,200 an hour. And I was like, what about an email? Like, <laughs> Is there a discount for an email? <laughs> so there's just lots of yeah. things that you learn along the way that no one tells you about, but it's been the the delight of my career. I've really, really loved every bit of it. Yeah. And I think that's a theme with a lot of guests that I've had in master's or grad programs or post-grad programs, the business of running a practice. And so I, I try and always ask about that process because I think for a lot of people getting to that point where you have a private practice that's with your belief system and you're seeing the clients you want to work with and like mm -hmm. it's just such a lovely experience there are a lot of learning curves and there is some like fear around that when you have that holiday slump or you know um having to set a fee or raise a fee and, and kind of navigate those things are scary but it's, it's also so good for you as a practitioner to be able to practice in a way that congruent with your belief system absolutely so what does What's what's the joy? What are you doing that's not necessarily therapy related, or is your recreation time reading therapy books? <laughs> no, no, um, I do. I am an avid reader, but I only read um, fiction books. I will listen to other books, um, like when I'm on my walk or whenever I'm taking kids to school or whatever. But no, no, if it's leisure time, I am in a fiction book neck deep. Um, and getting lost in that. So that's really lovely. I love reading. Um, but my partner and I, my family, we love to convert vans for like people that like live off grid um, and make okay. these little vans their home. That's like one of the fun things that we get to do. We have a couple that we like rent out to people uh, because they want to live that life. But they're not quite sure that they're like ready to dive in. So that's a that's like the most delightful process is like trying to figure out like how you're going to convert the van, how you're going to configure it, where are you going to put the water lines and oh, wait, what if we did this or oh, there's a new heater out there on the market <laughs> that doesn't take as much fuel. Like it's it's a fun part of life that I get to use a totally different part of my brain for. 
Yeah, for sure. That's awesome. I, I love those outlets where it's problem solved. It's a bunch of skills you use in therapy, but it's such a different context that it doesn't kind of trigger that that therapy part of your brain. Totally. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I I coaching sports was always that for me. Like it's the same, mm -hmm. it's the same exact skill set as therapy, but like the way that I can run a practice or the way that I can coach during a game is not at all what I do in the therapy office. So even though they're they're similar skill sets, it mm -hmm. it looks a lot different. I love that. I grew up in a family of coaches, so yeah. Um, changing gears a little bit again. Um, I know you get a lot of like feedback on, hey, did you see this documentary? Hey, can you comment on? Uh, I think one of the things with your forensic background was the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial. How do you kind of? Uh, check in with yourself and honor your own boundaries around social media and pop culture stuff. Much of it is trauma stuff or every other week, it seems there's a new documentary on church trauma or the Boy Scouts or whatever organized group has abuse scandals coming out. Like, how do you kind of check in with that so you're aware of it without maybe letting it take up too much of that, that recreation time or that space away from therapy? Well, I really like documentaries. So, like, I really like them. That's like one of the things that I think is super validating of the work that I do. So I'm probably getting some needs met there. I also think that they are deeply um, uh, inspirational to me because I can watch a documentary and I'm like on my phone in my notes section, like making notes about like, oh, I can make a post about this. That would be so helpful for people to know about or like, oh yeah, I talk about this all the time, but it never occurred to me that people don't know that concept. Like, right. Like I, they're super inspirational. So I actually feel like I get a lot of things done kind of all at one time when wa watching documentaries, like I'm not in front of a computer, I'm like laid out on a couch or on my bed. So I'm, mm -hmm. you know, and I don't have to like be in any state, I don't have to feel the pressure to respond. But the content is so helpful for me that I'm not actually having to engage much on social media to try to find things that people need to know about, right? Like, which is what we do as content creators on social. That's actually the worst part of the job for me. I don't love having to scour social media to find inspiration. So I actually really, really love documentaries for that reason is that I get to just sort of like, it, it, it does a lot in a very short amount of time for me. Like mm -hmm. I can make months of content uh, just based on watching the Boy Scout documentary. So that'll be coming to you soon. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, like there's a lot going on kind of in those moments. So that actually meets a lot of needs of mine and it doesn't feel stressful. Uh, but I've already mentioned that content creation can feel kind of stressful, making sure that you're not making like, too big of promises that you're kind of staying in your ethical lane that you are calling out um, folks, but also maybe inviting other folks into a conversation that they haven't had before. It's a tender line. And I don't think that anyone can walk it perfectly. So I've sort of let that go. Um, but I do think that some like really clear boundaries have been helpful to me. Um, first of all, I never give advice. So that's super helpful for me in the ways that I, you know, sort of engage in social media. If you send mm -hmm. me a DM and you're like, what shall I do about this? I will immediately refer you to whoever is in your state um, that's a religious trauma expert. So that's really helpful. Um, and I never, ever, 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 nor will I ever disclose my current personal beliefs because what the hell does it matter? 
it sure. matters that there are abuses going on that I'm calling out. It matters that there is space for everyone to say like, this happened and I still believe and this happened and I don't believe. Like everyone has a space at the table. And when my information gets added into that as if I've got the market cornered on like what you shall do, right? <laughs> After some sort of abuse like this, um, I think the conversation changes in a way that makes me really uncomfortable. So I had that boundary kind of from the jump. Um, and I think since then that has set me up to feel really great about the ways that I engage. Um, but as soon as I feel like I'm kind of getting badgered to like, well, where do you stand on this? Or what do you believe about this? Um, I step away from it for a little while. And that's just a boundary that I've I've set, but it works really well for me. And it kind of keeps my brain in a space where when I actually do log in uh, to social media, I find a lot of joy there. I find a lot of connections there. There's a few assholes, Lord help us, uh, mm -hmm. but whatever. So we're there in the grocery store. I can live with it. Yeah, I love I love those boundaries. And I think that's super helpful. I think as a, a a small business owner, when you run your own practice, like that marketing and social media and all that stuff is tough. And so having those boundaries from the jump is super helpful. And I love um, professionals who've been in the field for a little bit longer sharing like how they navigate that because I think that helps the younger therapists um, navigate kind of a, a questionable thing. Again, a thing yeah. most of us aren't being taught about in our, our grad programs. Mm -hmm. Um. Well, Dr. Quincy, this is this has been great. I, I strongly recommend we'll have your Instagram in, in okay. the, the show notes, but you you put out so much good content. Um, your website has uh, different courses and things that people can sign up for in addition to all the, the therapy offerings. Anything that you want to promote or um, places where people can find you uh, if they want to connect? Um, definitely on Instagram. That's where I, I play most of the time. Um, I would say that we have a we have sort of a course space that you can come. It's called Trauma Stary. It's like monastery, but for trauma. See what we did sure. there? Yeah. <laughs> um, and Trauma Stary is where we have all of our courses, but we also have a membership specifically for religious trauma survivors. And I would say that that is the community that I am the most proud of. The way in which I was in the comments earlier today, inside the course of people asking questions and uh, other students supporting and giving their uh, tidbits has just been so delightful to see. It was exactly what I needed years ago when I was going through uh, my process. And I did not create the goodness. Uh, all of the members, all of the survivors that are in that group are creating the goodness. So um, I'd love for people to come and be a part of that if that feels like the place that they're in in their journey. Yeah, for sure. And we'll, we'll add those links into the show notes. Um, again, I like to always tell people like follow on Instagram, follow good people on Instagram because yeah. there's so much misinformation and bad information on social media. If you can totally. find experts or people who are qualified to comment on some of this, these complex topics, um, definitely worth a follow. So this has been fantastic. Thanks uh, for giving some time and, and sharing your experience and, and your knowledge with people. It's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And to all our listeners out there, thanks for tuning in again. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Take care, everyone.